Welcome to Identity, a series brought to you by ID Magazine. Join me, Osman Ahmed, ID's Fashion Futures Director, as I explore the enduring legacy of some of the last four decades' most influential subcultures. This week, we're delving into the birth of bling, exploring the role of jewellery in hip-hop and the not-so-hidden gems that have made music history. Anyone that's been around hip-hop culture from its early days understands that the way hip-hop looks is just as important as the way that hip-hop sounds. There's a really interesting moment where Burrell sees Slick Rick come on stage with all of his massive iconic jewellery and immediately calls Jacob the jeweller and says, listen, we're making the biggest Cuban you've ever seen and we're icing it out. To finally see grills being done in the kind of like high level that I think it deserves is very refreshing. It's definitely a culture that's hugely indebted to migration coming to America. It's entrenched in this bigger narrative around politics and race and generational wealth and who gets to live the American dream. In the last series of Identity, we spoke to Dapper Dan and others about the roots of hip-hop style. This episode, we're digging deeper into what's on the surface of hip-hop, quite literally. Bling, rocks, ice, drip, whatever you want to call it, jewellery is an essential part of hip-hop history. Cuban chains and pendants, Parve diamond rings and hoop earrings, bust-down watches and grills. They've adorned hip-hop's biggest stars, from its origins on the streets of New York, Atlanta and LA, to the gilded salons of jewellery houses on Place Vendôme in Paris. Where sportswear and sneakers encapsulated the effortlessness of hip-hop, jewellery gave it shine. Over the course of hip-hop's 50-year history, rappers have continually turned jewellery as a tool to carve out their own image, status and wealth. What started as a form of stunting has gone on to revolutionise the world of fashion and become a billion-dollar business. But first, let's go back to where it all started. Curtis Blow, I think, was the first artist that had gold chains on his album cover. You started to see, you know, Run DMC, Eric B. and Rakim, Flick Rick, of course, who is the, you know, Elizabeth Taylor of of our hip-hop jewelry world. Vicky Toback has been writing about hip-hop culture for over 20 years. You know, if you really want to tell the true story, you have to go one layer deeper than the early artists and talk about street culture, where it really came from. Because a lot of the early hip hop artists were looking to the guys in the neighborhoods, the drug dealers and kind of people around street culture that when you saw them move down the street, you know, the street as the runway, you knew exactly where they stood in, in society, in the culture, um, just their place. Vicky's book, Ice Cold, A Hip-Hop Jewelry History, documents the rise of jewelry's importance in hip-hop and how the image of the bejeweled hip-hop star has influenced wider culture. Before you even had, you know, the Jake of the Jewelers of the World, you had local places that catered 
specifically to, you know, the hip hop community for, for jewelry. At the beginning, it was very much about going for gold. Big, chunky um, rope chains, dookie links, a lot of iconography, right? You'd see like Mercedes pendants, you'd see gold fronts or gold caps were pretty just kind of standard. Then you start to follow the trajectory of how the industry started growing. Eventually, the taste of rappers veered away from the chunky, oversized gold chains into more sparkling displays of diamonds and coloured gemstones. Ice, as it's known in the hip-hop community, came to life on custom-made pieces that were maximalist displays of wealth in all their glittering glory. I'm Lyle Lindgren, filmmaker, writer, grill encyclopedia Lyle Lindgren is a street culture documentarian and co-author of a new book Mouthful of Golds a survey of the origins and influence of grills hip-hop's most significant contribution to the jewelry world it was written in collaboration with famous Eddie Pline, known as the inventor of grills. By the mid-90s, each mini-centre of the hip-hop world had their go-to jewellery kiosk, all with their own distinct style. New York had Eddie in Queens and Jacob the Jeweller in the Diamond District. Houston and the Southern rappers had King Johnny's ostentatious iced-out pendants and Johnny Dang's TV jewellery. While in Miami, there was Frankie Diamonds, who started selling his ornate custom pieces at a flea market. What is noticeable is that rappers weren't flocking to the likes of Tiffany and Cartier or other established jewellery houses, but instead favouring local jewellers with whom they had a creative kinship. It's very kind of communal. Like, if you go to, you know, the Coliseum in Queens or you go to Albee Square Mall or what used to be USA number one flea market in Miami, you can walk into these places and you can walk right up to a kiosk, straight to a jeweler, have your money ready and either start buying or start designing. And I think even that experience is sometimes more comfortable than, say, you know, trying to go to a Cartier and go in there with your idea. So I think a lot of these jewelers thrived because of their positioning in neighborhoods and towns and their accessibility. From the Diamond District, to Canal Street, to Sloss and Swap Meet in LA, almost exclusively, you know, the jewelers that catered to hip hop were either, you know, immigrants or children of immigrants. As Vicky Toback points out, all of these jewelers have one thing in common. From Suriname to Vietnam, each of these designers are first or second generation immigrants to the US. The story of hip hop, as we covered in series one, has been shaped by immigration. Right back to its roots, Cool Herc, the man credited for starting the chain of events that would eventually become America's most influential subculture, was born in Jamaica, not the USA. Something about, you know, certain jewelers and hip-hop artists found a way to communicate with each other. And I think recognized a certain hustle in each other and, and found sort of a common language. So... When you look at like early jewelers like Eddie Plain, Tito Caicedo, you know, then Jacob the Jeweler, folks like Aviani and Co., Raffaello and Co., you know, even today, right? Ben Baller, um, Greg Yuna, all 
children of immigrants. So that was really interesting to me because big traditional jewelry houses couldn't have handled it if if Biggie Smalls walked in and said, I want this Jesus piece with, you know, diamond crown of thorns on a Cuban link chain that's, you know, 25 inches long, like they wouldn't know what to do with that. It wasn't just about the ice or the bling. For pioneering hip-hop artists, there was a sense of respect for these jewelers' craftsmanship, dedication and perfectionism, as well as a willingness to experiment with new ways of doing things. Much like the music of hip-hop, the jewellery that was made merged innovative creativity, meticulous skill and most importantly, a sense of personalisation and aesthetic sampling. Hip-hop's origins in the Bronx in the 70s came from a cultural melting pot where musical motifs borrowed from existing tracks were remade into genre-busting, pioneering new sounds. The way that hip-hop jewellery has evolved, involving collaboration and experimentation, as well as borrowing logos and visual references a la Dapper Dan, directly reflects the look and sound of hip-hop's 90s heyday. Hip-hop culture and, you know, hip-hop jewelry culture are built on a legacy of customization and remixing and and having something that nobody else has. You know, when Biz or Biggie or whoever it was or Jay walked into Jacob the jeweler or walked into Tito's, it's the equivalent of someone walking into Dapper Dan's and saying, make me an MCM jacket with Louis Vuitton sleeves or, you know, whatever it was, which is the equivalent of some grand dame walking into the house of Dior and asking for something custom and luxury. Hip hop was built on having things that nobody else had, that you were unique. I mean, you see that even in sneaker culture too. And the jewelry was an early example of that customization and remixing culture that that hip-hop is so celebrated for. Each scene has its own legends. Hip-hop jewellery has Jacob Araba, a.k.a. Jacob the Jeweler, who moved from the Soviet Union to New York with his family as a young teenager. Starting out as a trained watchmaker, by the time he was in his early 20s, he'd set up his own kiosk in New York's Diamond District, where his innovative designs caught the attention of Biggie Smalls, who gave him his nickname, which has since been name-dropped in hundreds of hip-hop tracks. Jacob really played a massive part in pushing rappers to turn their jewellery from yellow gold to white gold and to platinum, and then kind of really introducing the, the stones, which... Up until that point, diamonds within jewellery in hip-hop was quite scarce. You would see, you know, the odd one or two stones for kind of impact, you know, in a set of front teeth or going back to Raekwon's tarantula pendant, he had maybe like a couple of rubies for the eyes of the spider, something like that. But then very quickly, Jacob came in and kind of blew the roof off of everything. It's really Jacob that 
started collaborating with artists such as 50 Cent, Pharrell, and Nego, and I think leveled up the possibility as well of what you could actually make. You know, later you start seeing artists like Gucci Mane, um, Pharrell starting to use colored gemstones, starting to be more playful with their jewelry. I mean, you know, Gucci's like Bart Simpson chain and all the things that Pharrell did, taking like a Gucci link and making it all different colored gemstones and puffing it out. And that directly was influencing the young crop of artists like Tyler, the creator, ASAP Rocky, like folks that you're seeing now. You look at someone like Pharrell with his jewelry choices. Pharrell always tries to create something that's never been done before. It's almost from stories I've heard, he wants to be involved in the creative process and collaborate with a jeweler or come up with an idea that's never been done before. And that's why his jewelry is, is always a moment. You always wait and watch to see what Pharrell's doing. Grills. The jewelry that's most associated with hip hop culture, a merging of dentistry know how, artistic skill, and the ultimate form of opulence diamonds. Also known as fronts or golds, whatever you call them, their presence in hip hop culture today is unmistakable. But their origins are more ancient than you might think. It's known that wealthy Etruscan women in what we now know as Western Italy wore golden fronts, and Mayan royalty would pop large pieces of jade into holes drilled in their teeth. Dental jewels have been a part of human culture for millennia. But modern grills started when famous Eddie, a trained dentist who was familiar with gold crowns used as a cheaper alternative to white porcelain, began to question how you could add and remove gold teeth. And rather than using them as a strictly dental fix, he would rethink them as a tool for self-expression. You find that often gold crowns are used as a form of dentistry when the price of gold is at a low, you know, a low-income form of dentistry that you can push out to people without, you know, aesthetical pleasing of having a white porcelain crown. And so with Eddie, he was seeing people kind of rock these gold crowns and really Surinamese culture, West Indian culture, taking something and making it their own. And you can see this in Jamaica with an artist like Big Youth in the 70s, covering, you know, the all of the front of his teeth with these gold caps and having kind of an open face and having different diamonds like set in his teeth. And so with Eddie, he returned to Suriname for the first time in sort of 10 years after coming to America. And he cracked his tooth while eating lunch and went to the local dentist and they offered him a crown. And he kind of didn't really want a crown. He wanted to get something more, you know, white and aesthetically pleasing when he went back to America. And so he asked if they could just put something over it, like a gold cap, and he'll he'll take it off when he goes home. And they said that wasn't really a thing, and that's what really sparked Eddie's light bulb moment. And then being as well in, in that era in New York, just as hip-hop is coming into its own and the crack era is rising up, he's 
observing a lot of people on the corner making a lot of fast money buying a lot of jewelry and so he he describes it as the adidas era the four finger ring era the gold rope era and so really he's he's taking all of these kind of influences and having this light bulb moment and so he drops out of college goes to dental school and just starts toiling with this idea of trying to put caps together and make what would essentially become gold fronts and then would become the grill. Things like gold teeth, right, that that in, in, in all different parts of the world and, you know, in a lot of Caribbean culture, um, you know, in the former Soviet Union, in parts of Vietnam, you see kind of gold teeth being used as like a necessity for like just dental care. And I think folks from all those different parts of the world and traditions made their way, you know, to the United States through through immigration. And that all just kind of blended up into a beautiful, like, mix in New York. And you start to see jewelers like Eddie Plain, who starts um, making grills. You start to see Gabby Alon, who was first in um, Brooklyn and then moved to the Diamond District. Hi, dear. How are you? I'm working right now. Yes, yes. Nice to meet you. I'm Gabby. Gabby Penasov is a New York-based designer and master of grills. Starting out in the early 90s, having been trained as a dental assistant, he has since gone on to become one of the most exciting grill designers in the world, in part thanks to his partnership with his son, Elam. I studied that in Israel, actually. Went to army, got married, come to America. Then I was looking for an open lab to work with that base. And I met people with a... With the gold teeth, I asked a couple of them, where you got this from? And then I uh, was looking for some jewelry store to rent a place and show what I can do. This is how it started, actually. Since the early 90s, his list of clientele has grown exponentially, and he has made grills for the likes of ASAP Rocky, Kim Kardashian, Tyler the Creator, Bella Hadid, Mark Jacobs, and Pharrell. Here's Gabby's son, Elan, who, since joining his father's business, launching the brand on social media and expanding their ambitions, has taken their success stratospheric. It was very uh, word of mouth kind of business. There was no social media. If you're making a commercial, it's going to cost you a million dollars. So, you know, most people were doing that for like smaller businesses, if you will. Um, so that time it was all a matter of just preference, people who you knew, people who uh, respected your work, who uh, preferred you over others. And my dad was always known for the quality that he used to provide. I teach my son too. You want to do something, do the best. Do whatever you can, you know, and be happy. Grills hit the mainstream in the mid-2000s when hip-hop began to be incorporated into global pop culture. But in recent years, with the rise of social media, grills have become commonplace far outside the hip-hop community. As intimate and personal as a piece of jewellery can be, jewellery for the inside just as much as for the surface, grills are the ultimate way to show off what you've got and who you are, both on the street and increasingly importantly, in a selfie. These days, everything is under such a, you know, big microscope. 
everybody's being analyzed for what they do, what they don't do, what they wear, what they don't wear. And the grills, even though it's being such a small accessory, makes the biggest impact because you can't really hide your smile once you open your mouth. You can cover your watch, you can cover your necklace, tuck it in or whatever, but the grills is always going to be something that just takes straight attention uh, to whoever your audience may be. Who makes your grills is just as important as what they look like. Someone like Gabby Elan, uh, amazing grill maker, he has another moment and has another resurgence because you also have artists like Rocky getting to live out their Tumblr dreams. All those images they've seen of Pharrell, you know, Slick Rick, Paul Wall, Vashti with her grills, like all these images that they've seen and soaked up, they then get the opportunity to put their spin on it. Um, one of the craziest ones was The Last Supper. The top was all hand-painted. It took about six months to hand-paint. It has the picture of The Last Supper, basically like one to on painted onto the grill. At the bottom was um, Michelangelo's creation of Adam, the two hands. So it had the two hands also hand-painted, surrounded by diamonds that were set like flawlessly. And yeah, that also took a long time, but I love the way they both like mesh together. Beautiful work of art. Platinum winning artists and enthusiasts alike will travel the world for their perfect pair, which can take up to several fittings. That globalization, artists going out of the kind of comfort zone, seeing Rocky go to Paris, go to Fashion Week, you start to get these collaborations where, you know, Rocky's being introduced to the Parisian grill maker Dolly Cohen. And Dolly Cohen is an amazing talent. Like she, I think has completely changed like the game of grills just in terms of creating this delicate form of grills that hadn't really existed before where, you know, styles are super thin, but they're super clever. They're almost an optical illusion. Some of the works that she does. What's interesting now is it's that globalization where you almost have to have to globe hop to get your jewelry collection together, whether it's going to Paris to get a grill from Dolly or getting a ring from, you know, Oathlong Thai in London or going to New York and getting a big piece from Alex Moss. So it's really exciting how it's evolved. And I think as well, social media has like pushed people to step their jewellery game up hard. A tale as old as time and just as much applicable to clothing designers as jewellers, it wasn't long before the establishment caught wind of hip-hop's unique style and began incorporating it into high fashion collections. Whereas back then, often the cultural crate digging was a one-way street, European designers borrowing from hip-hop subculture, today the dynamic has shifted and rappers and hip-hop artists are now at the forefront of institutional brands. In fact, some of them are even behind the scenes too. This year, Pharrell, never one without lashings of jewellery, was announced as the creative director of Louis Vuitton. You know, you think back to even like Karl Lagerfeld's hip-hop collection back in the day, which had a lot of the, you know, chunky gold chains. and But, you know, hip-hop itself was sort of nowhere to be found in that show. And you fast forward now with jewellery, you look at things like the Tiffany hardware collection, Jay and Beyonce being the face of Tiffany or ASAP Ferg being the first hip hop ambassador for, for places like Tiffany. And all of those things that we're seeing in mainstream luxury houses now 
come right out of the visual language of, of hip hop. Hip hop now is, I think, recognized by the luxury houses as having that power and having that style influence. And it's no longer kind of disconnected and, and, and borrowed from the way it was. Again, like fast forward to now, you know, it's intersecting with like luxury fashion and people are getting so playful with it. And a lot of women um, are starting to wear grills. I'm still waiting to see like some Tiffany grills, like when they're going to drop. It was quite interesting to see um, when Mark Jacobs started getting into grills and the sets that he was making. And, you know, one of his first sets that Gabby Elan made, he had the classic kind of yellow gold solid tooth open face, but then he also had, you know, enamel painted teeth that were in the classic Tiffany colors. So it's, it's quite interesting watching the sort of awakening of real institutional jewelry houses starting to really see the power and potential that hip hop has. So, Lal, what does this mean for the original jewelers, the innovators who push the craft to its limits? Because for them, that face-to-face collaboration and that kind of intimate process was so important for the artists that went to them. Jewelers only survive when they have an economy that can stimulate their business. And so I think every time kind of hip hop evolves, like as a, as a business where there's artists that are generating huge amounts of capital, there will be opportunities for jewelers. I think jewelry evolves because hip hop keeps evolving. As we discovered with hip-hop style in Series 1, like any subculture that becomes a global trend, jewellery and hip-hop has been criticised for its more is more opulence. But beneath the glittering surface lies a far more complex story of identity, social mobility, representation and a reclamation of history. You can't separate the history of hip-hop jewelry, which is built, you know, out of black and brown culture and separate it from this greater conversation of where these commodities come from, you know, which is primarily from, from Africa. I mean, you think about beautiful things, right? Like Mansa Musa being the richest man of all time, um, a king that was known, you know, for his gold and his adornment and, and sort of that legacy of African royalty using, you know, gold as a celebration. But then, of course, interject that with the history of gold mining, diamond mining, equity in those commodities, and then who is spending on those things in hip hop culture. And I think that that's a really important part of this conversation because it really is such a deeper story of, of identity, who gets to share in, you know, that global dream of wealth and, and prosperity. And what is this all built on? Hip-hop's rappers follow in a grand tradition of peacocks. 
From ancient African royalty to European emperors, Maharajas to flamboyant rock stars. In doing so, they created new forms of self-expression to tell the world their story in more ways than just spelling it out in their lyrics. Jewelry is simply the embodiment of their identity. And really, isn't adorning yourself in jewels just part of human nature? And who doesn't like a bit of bling? I think it's very, very important that we begin and end this story on asking those questions. This idea of adornment is such a universal thing, how we show ourselves to the world, what we put onto our bodies and what we decide to show people and how that's interwoven with equity and who gets to make and create and wear and share in in the wealth of that and who understands the history of that going all the way back to, to Africa. You can't separate that from the bling bling of it all. Identity was written and presented by Osman Ahmed, with research and additional writing by Amy Duffy and Mohoro Seward. Identity is produced by Media Phillips, with assistance by Marta Abramaitite, and art by Callum Glende and Alexandra Talarcher. The audio producer was me, Robin Lieburn, and Identity is a Podmasters production for Vice Media.